Welcome to episode 83 of Radio 815, the podcast dedicated to examining the work of writer director J.J. Abrams, as well as his greater Bad Robot universe. I'm your host. My name is Marcelo Nostroza, joined as always by my fellow co-host, Matt Crandall. And on today's edition of the show, we'll be talking about Fringe Season 1, Episodes 10 through 11. First up in that batch is episode 10, entitled Safe. So Matt, do you want to go rob a bank together? I definitely would, but not with this kind of contraption, unless I have some guarantees that I'm not going to be abandoned mid-wall, which is how this episode opens, where we see Mitchell Loeb, that bastard who, you know, he was in trouble, we saved him, and now he's doing... All sorts of weird stuff. And we saw him last hanging out with an apple. And now we see what this was all sort of leading towards. And him and some cronies are breaking into a safe, but they are teleporting or transporting themselves through the walls of the safe. And unfortunately, one of them gets caught in it. And that moment was such a cool, what the hell? And of course, Loeb being a bastard, he's like, well, we're not going to cut this guy out and waste our time. Bullet to the head is the best solution. So I thought that was a really cool and dynamic opening because this is a guy leading this team that we have already seen using technology that we have only kind of seen. And the fact that they're using it to rob a bank and we aren't sure at this moment why they would need to go to these lengths for whatever it is they're after, but also they are willing to sacrifice their team to not get caught, which makes me intrigued as to what they are doing. What are you thinking when dude gets stuck in the wall? This episode starts to put together threads of things that we've been slowly introduced to in earlier episodes of Fringe. There's something bigger going on here. And this episode, like you said, is a continuation of the technology that was introduced where this machine has the ability to vibrate items through itself. But instead of an apple, in this episode, we get a classic bank robbery with a sci-fi twist of guys going through a solid wall to rob a safety deposit box that, that has something in it. I really, really loved the opening to this episode, but the thing that I absolutely loved about them entering the bank was the fact that once they turn on the machine, the wall starts to vibrate. I love the fact that they had to use a rope to help them pull through, that they couldn't just walk through. I love that little extra detail that the writers of this episode added the other thing that I liked about this episode is that the safety deposit boxes that this master team of thieves are robbing in several different cities a- across the U.S. are for are somehow related to Dr. Bishop and something that Dr. Bishop stored away in these several safe deposit boxes. That's the thing that these guys are after. And I love it. When Walter figures out that what these guys are after 
is something that he hid away. And I love the fact that he can't remember what the hell he put in those boxes. And it takes Peter to play some sort of like he Peter, it takes Peter to do some Jedi mind trick to 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 sort of jog Walter's memory loose. What do you think about the the overall plot of this episode being directly connected to uh, Walter Bishop and something that he didn't something that he did in the past or something that he tried to hide in the past. Yeah, so I really like that the two main threads of this episode are one is Olivia recognizes the guy who got stuck and she knows who he is and has to investigate that. And then the other is them trying to predict where the next bank robbery will be. And in doing so, realize that the safety deposit box numbers of the boxes that were stolen are part of the Fibonacci sequence. And Peter goes, well, I know these numbers because Walter says them every night before he goes to bed. And then they realize not only are these numbers part of the Fibonacci sequence, but it is because they are Walter Bishop's safety deposit boxes. And he's the guy who opened these specific accounts in specific banks to put pieces of some sort of device. And I love that the whole time as we're realizing this, we are getting frustrated with Walter because he doesn't remember. He doesn't remember at first what it is. He doesn't remember where they are. And I do, like you mentioned, Peter tricks him by when they realize the location of the, the city, at least of the final bank. And he says, Hey, Walter, you know, just in passing, if you were going to go banking in whatever place, what bank would you go to? Well, just like, that's easy. It would be this bank. And then he looks at him and he's like, Oh, Peter, like good one. Like he realizes that he got the information out of him. So I thought that was great. And again, it shows that Walter is a guy who sometimes he frustrates us because he is responsible for so much of what's happening and doesn't have the mental capacity to recall the stuff that he has done with any sort of accuracy. So that was frustrating because we know that Walter has the info that we need, but he can't recall it right away. So I did love seeing how they got that information out. And then by the end of the episode, we do find out what is in the boxes. And he does remember that and tells us. So I thought that was very interesting. But having this be that the, the one story and then the other one where Olivia recognizes the guy stuck in the wall and has to investigate to try and find out who he was working with. And very quickly, she meets up with his wife, who she thinks that she has a relationship with. And she remembers celebrating at a dinner at their house. And she remembers all of this stuff. And the wife is confused because she has never met Olivia Dunham in her life. So Susan Lugo is like, I don't know what to tell you. I've You've never been here. You didn't know my husband. You don't know me. And she said, no, I vividly remember the night that the promotion and the dinner. And she goes, well, yeah, that happened. But the only person who was here with us was John Scott. And so I love that as we are dealing with Walter trying to recall his own memories, Olivia is actually recalling someone else's and mistaking them as hers. And we see the extent of 
her connection with John and how going into his memories has actually changed her own perception of reality and memories and her having to wrestle with that fact now where she could remember something and she can't immediately recall if it's a true memory or if she is inserting herself into a John Scott memory is a really fascinating dynamic that we're going to have to wrestle with for a bit because if we can't trust Olivia because she doesn't know what's real and what's not, that adds a whole new level to everything that's going on of uncertainty. That begs the question, like if Olivia's memories are starting to mold, if Olivia's memories and John Scott's memories are starting to mold into one, like what kind of damage is Olivia going to be looking at in the future? Is Olivia going to basically turn in, is Olivia's brain going to turn into scrambled eggs? Is she going to have to be lobotomized or is she going to need some sort of emergency medical procedure that the only one that can do it properly is a guy that was in a mental institution for 17 plus years? And how comfortable is she with the fact that her brain might turn into scrambled eggs at some point? Is that something that you think that she has running through her brain at this point? Or do you think she's just trying to get her bearings? I think at this point, she's just trying to get her bearings and she may not be thinking of the long-term ramifications that we are starting to think of. And we're also starting to think of that because at the same time, we find out that massive dynamics say they have hit a wall when it comes to accessing John Scott's memories. And we see his body there and they're saying, we've kind of decoded everything we can, but we don't have everything we need. And so they print out an image from his optic nerve of the last thing he saw to try and realize where they can get the data that they need. And of course it is John looking at Olivia and somehow they think they can tell that the image is linked to a second set of brainwave echoes or something. And so massive dynamic realizes that maybe the information that they were hoping to get out of John Scott, that they can't because they've hit a wall is something that may actually be in Dunham's mind now. And so that throws another element in where it's like, we were already worried about Olivia because she was confusing her memories and John Scott's. But now that massive dynamic knows that and massive dynamic is not getting everything they need from John Scott. It again opens up more danger than I think Dunham knows that she's in. That scene when Nina Sharp goes to one of her specialists and one of her specialists says, we've extracted as much information out of John as we can. And now we need that secondary brainwave. And we've just realized that, sec- that, that we've just realized that that secondary brainwave is coming from Olivia. I thought for a half a second that Nina Sharp might have the balls to kidnap Olivia Dunham. And I'm like, if you do that, There'll be no redeeming for you. By that being set up, the final sequence of this episode is Olivia racing, trying to trying to find the surviving members of this group. And when she's driving to the location, a black SUV pulls up and forces her a little bit off the road and she gets taken. And at first you're like, oh, that's got to be Nina Sharp. That has to be Nina Sharp. But for eagle-eyed viewers, you would know that that is 
the men working for a guy called Mr. Jones. But we do keep cutting back to Mr. Jones in his cell meeting with his lawyer and making some sort of arrangements and setting things in motion that has is on our radar radar the entire time, but it's not until the last act of the episode where we start to realize exactly what was at play here, because we know that Jones knows more and he got that information from Dunham a few episodes ago of little Hill that becomes a key plot point. We revisit Jones again. And at what seems at first, like just him meeting with a lawyer and boring stuff starts to end up steamrolling and picking up steam until that last act of the episode is all about, as you said, Olivia is racing to try and find this team and where they are going to be. And they realize that where they are going to be is little Hill because Olivia has that information when she met with Jones. But the other piece of information we get is that Walter does remember what was in those boxes. And it was a device that he was building when Peter was sick. And this device he was going to use to reach back in time and grab this doctor and bring him to our times to cure Peter. Somehow Walter explains it as he never ended up using the device because he said Peter got better. It's kind of glossed over why he didn't use the device in this episode. He just sort of says, well, I didn't need to use it. So we didn't, but even Peter saying, so you're saying like, you know, you could go back in time and he goes, well, theoretically you could, could grab someone from anywhere using this device and pull them through. And that's when we start cutting from little Hill where the guys are setting up the device and we see Jones back himself into a corner and look like he's about to be ready to be beamed up. And we start to put together, Oh shit. Okay. So this whole thing is a prison break and all of the pieces have been put into place because Walter did create this device that these guys are assuming that they can make work and they aren't going to reach back in time as far as we know, or across that weird space time stuff. They're just going to grab this guy out of his cell and pull him out. We're getting all this information literally in the last 10 minutes of the episode. So you're just trying to catch up and it's very exciting as we start to realize that again, we are dealing with shit. That's all Walter's fault, but the bad guys are using it to get the big bad guy that we have seen as this mild mannered prisoner. What happens when that guy Jones is out? So you combine that with Olivia getting abducted and you get a very dramatic finale for this was the fall finale of fringe before the Christmas break. And then it went off the air for a couple of weeks before they came back in January. And you can tell because it's a cliffhanger where, you know, we Dunham gets taken Jones gets out of jail, a bunch of bad shit happens, and none of it is paid off. Let me ask you this. On subsequent viewings, were you surprised in this episode that Walter said what he said about having this idea of finding the scientists that created this machine that potentially could lead to time travel? Were you surprised that the writers of this episode basically 
you know, gave away a giant pillar of what the series is about in this sort of innocuous, in, in this sort of innocuous kind of way, or the or the sort of roundabout way. I think this was kind of like they knew that where they wanted to get is we're going to go to a place where not only is the slightly weird possible, but the super weird sci-fi stuff is also possible. So we want to start turning up the heat to let you know that that's coming without just dumping the water on you. So I thought that that was a way for them to basically brace us for how weird fringe would get over the next X amount of episodes. So I think that was kind of them just dipping a toe in that water to let us know one Walter would do anything to fix Peter. He would even create a device that seems impossible. And two, we might start doing the impossible. So if anything seems outside of the realm of possibility on our show, it's not. When Walter basically does like a show and tell to illustrate to the audience what happens to the individuals that broke into the bank, what happens to them once they go through the wall. Walter has a bunch of stuff, but among that bunch of stuff that he has, he has this box of toys. And he just says to Peter, he just says to him, oh, these are your old toys, son, from when you were a kid. Don't you recognize them? And Peter says, Walter, those aren't my toys. And the reason why that is weird and significant to me is because there have been various situations where Walter has said things about Peter's childhood that doesn't match up to Peter. And as an audience member, you're thinking to yourself, is Walter crazy or is he not, does he know something that we don't know? So back in the day, did those lines resonate with you or did those lines resonate with you way later on when we actually got the full picture? I think it was more so later on because early on when Walter is saying all this contradictory stuff about Peter, we do know that we have heard about the accident and certain things that happened to Peter as a kid. And Walter is such an unreliable narrator that him mistaking those toys and Peter saying, those aren't my toys. I just think it's an Astrid Astro situation where Walter is falling into these same, you know, sinkholes again and again in his mind. So I just think, Oh, it's Walter is crazy. Not, not realizing that they are just giving us breadcrumbs that are true and that have a greater ramification later. So I do think that that was interesting. And I do love when he demonstrates with the rice and the toy to show us how that technology works. And that was very simple and playful. My favorite playful scene of the episode in terms of great Walter Bishop uh, lines is when him and Peter go to the hardware store and uh, the innocent young girl comes and she's like, can I help you find something? And Walter's like, oh yes, we're looking for a saw. And she's like, oh, are you cutting wood? He's like, no, no, human tissue, flesh and bone. And she's like, uh, and Peter's like, no, it's not, it's not dire. It's not something to be worried about. And Walter goes, oh, it's, it's way worse than you could ever imagine. And the girl's like, I think it's around the corner. Walter's like, thank you. And Peter's like, no need to call the police. Oh my God. This was such a great Peter and Walter exchange. Uh, definitely one of my favorite parts of the episode in a, like a throwaway scene, but the dialogue just makes it gold. 
Mr. Jones's lawyer, as they keep going back to him, his lawyer is basically explaining to him the best he can do for him is life in prison. Basically, Mr. Jones is using his lawyer to communicate with his guys on the outside. And Mr. Jones keeps asking his lawyer for certain things. And I'm going, what kind of fucking stupid lawyer is this? Like, is Mr. Jones paying him that much amount of money that he would be willing to do these basic chores for Mr. Jones? You know, not asking him what the hell they're about? Like, like no lawyer on the face of the earth would do what Mr. Jones's lawyer did for him. I mean, it's crazy. You're not making shit up. He definitely has weird requests. And I think it only didn't phase me because the guy who's playing the lawyer, James Frayne, always plays a bad guy or a guy you are supposed to trust who then turns out to be like some sort of evil mastermind. If you watch shows like Orphan Black Elementary, he's been on a million shows and he always starts off as a mild mannered dude who then has some sort of giant evil turn. So I was actually surprised that he didn't try and kill Mr. Jones because I was like, they got James Frayne. This guy's going to be a fucking nut job who's going to be just as bad as Mr. Jones and we don't know it yet. So I wasn't questioning because I'm like, okay, well, he's clearly evil. They got this guy. He's got to be bad. He's in on it. And so then by the time the episode is over and he's left for dead, I was like, the fuck? I thought that this guy would be having some sort of bigger part because now, again, this aired back in 2008. So maybe I'm bringing the extra 14 years of this guy being a character actor on TV baggage. But I didn't question it. I do think a normal lawyer would question it, but because they got the guy who always plays evil, I was just like, oh, they're they're in an evil alliance of some kind. We move on to the final episode that we're going to be talking about this week. Episode 11, entitled Bound. This episode, Bound, as I said, the last one was the fall finale. So this is the winter premiere in January, and it's written by the heavy hitters, Kurtzman, Orsi, JJ, and Jeff Pinkner. And what I like about it and also hate is that I have mentioned before that episode after the premiere where they had to bring everybody back up to speed on what the show was in case you weren't watching the show. And when we left this show, we had this huge cliffhanger. Olivia is taken. She is taken. We might never see her again. And this opens with her being tortured and some weird shit. But within five minutes, Olivia Dunham is escaped. She's back at the FBI and everything is normal. And we got a guy in her hospital room who is the man that she got arrested for sexual assault, who has now been white privileged out of all charges. And he is back and he does the in case you haven't watched any episodes of Fringe Here is the recap to bring you up to speed. And he even goes, you're working with this guy who used to be in an asylum. And they cut to old footage of Walter. You're working with his young hotshot son. They cut to footage of Peter. So part of me was frustrated in the TV dynamics of this is an episode clearly that the first 10 minutes tried to please the fans for five minutes who have been waiting for six weeks to find out what happened to Olivia. But then the next five minutes was, uh, in case you've never watched our show, here's what it is. And then we got back to like a mystery of the week. We got a few of the serialized stuff spread in, but a lot of it was back to 
this mystery of this disgusting slug that comes out of this guy who's teaching a class. So it was like two steps forward, one step back where the serialized stuff in the last episode was getting so intriguing and was the bulk of the entire episode. And then now it was like, don't worry, we're still doing episode of the week stuff with just that five minutes at the start, five minutes at the end that really carries over. And the main focus is going to be if you were watching this show and you've never seen it before, you can still hang with us. So it felt to me like network notes had seeped into this episode in a way that some of the others didn't. But then again, also, it could have just been that the creative team, and because the main core is all on this episode, they wanted to open the door for people who felt they were too far behind to jump in. It was so jarring. And then we're adding like a sister of Olivia that we've never heard of before. Like so much stuff happens that it felt like to me as the cynical TV guy, this is incorporating the network notes that they got after the first batch of episodes aired. And they're trying to make Olivia more sympathetic by giving her a niece and a sister. And we're bringing everybody back up to speed and we're giving her an antagonist within the organization. The guy that she got fired because her embroils broils was that antagonist at first, but now they are tight. So we don't have that inner conflict at the office, but now we got dickhead out walking around with a vendetta against Olivia. What are you thinking as we find out that the guy that she had ousted for being a sexual predator is back and is basically overseeing a lot of this stuff. Now I like you, was so weirded out by the start of this episode because like you just said, it is so odd because this episode is really oddly structured. In my opinion, it starts off where we left off with Olivia being abducted. And like you said, she gets out of there really quick, but then this guy that we heard about in the pilot shows up. And he is basically, he shows up under the pretenses that he is basically doing an audit of the fringe division, which is a bunch of bullshit. He's there because he has a, uh, he has a vendetta against Olivia Dunham because he's the one that she put away for sexual harassment years ago. He's the jackass that I said way back when we reviewed the pilot, he, that I said that he was never going to show up again. And poof, here he is. So he shows up and his behavior throughout this entire episode was so contemptible to me. I wanted to punch, I wanted to punch him in his fucking face. I I don't know what it was about this guy. I mean, he's a great actor. He's He's a great, he's a great character actor. I can't remember his name right now, but the way that he was structured and written, he was just written to be an asshole. And I did not like, um, the the clip show the the let's catch you up on what the show is about just in case if just in case you haven't seen the show and am am i correct in assuming that you think that that was notes on the network and bob alex jj and jeff put that in there because they had to not because they wanted to i think that they they also want more people to watch the show so they may have been wanting to do it but I do feel it was like Fox came to them and was like, hey, just so you know, can you find a way to let people who didn't watch the first half get in and watch the second half? So I'm sure they were happy to do it. 
But for those of us who were watching live and Dunham being kidnapped was such a huge moment. And to then have her unkidnapped and everything be status quo, except for this guy now investigating fringe division was a real, like what, why are we, why are we undoing all the intrigue that we had set up now? Luckily they redo a lot of that by the end of this. So I just feel it was like, let's let more people into the pool who don't know how to swim. The other thing that was very disappointing to me in this episode is the main, the main case of the week of this episode isn't introduced until what, like 10 minutes into the episode, right? It's got, it, it, right. It has to be like 10, 10 or 15 minutes. And the big case of the week is that, you know, somebody has figured out how to kill people with the cold virus. But apparently once they, once they mix this powder in with general water, the cold virus manifests as this giant worm in your stomach and it burrows all the way up from the bottom of your stomach and it, it, it rips out your esophagus and it, and it chokes you to death. So I thought that that was a really cool case of the week sort of monster-ish thing to do. But the thing that really hooked me was at the end of this episode. But before we get to that, I just want to mention that I don't believe that the character of Olivia Dunham needed to be more sympathetic because I don't know how you feel, Matt, but I'm a diehard uh, bad robot guy, obviously, or else I wouldn't have created the show. But do, do you think that Olivia needed more to be sympathetic? Do you Did you think that in the first half of the season, she was a little bit too soft, that she needed some some anchors to, to to make the audience feel more connected to her now maybe it, maybe i chose the wrong wording but i feel like somehow somewhere along the line somebody was like we need to go home with dunham more and see her in like a, a family setting and see her doing non-fringe things because i i just feel like it's really weird that we had the traumatic story about her birthday and getting the cards, but this sister shows up with this niece seemingly out of nowhere. Like, I'm like, did I fall asleep when they mentioned this? And even if they knew they were going to do this, then why not tease it? Like, you know, this abusive stepfather, I was worried because of my sister. I was worried for her safety. Like somehow it just feels kind of shoehorned in to me. That's just like a personal thing. So I feel like it was, it was some sort of note or the writers themselves realizing maybe Dunham will be more compelling. If we see her not working all the time, we see Mm -hmm. her have other things outside of the case and the FBI that she cares about. So then we can care about her and the people around her more than we do right now when it's just, I care about her relationship with Peter and her safety insofar as she's the star of the show. But on a personal level, I don't know that much about her. I know that she's a great agent and she's tireless. And that's what makes her stand out is that she never stops working. 
but that can only get us so far in a long running series. So I think that might be part of it. As you mentioned, I love that the main story of the week, we see Walter experimenting on caterpillars with LSD in classic Walter fashion. And then this super slug that is a manifestation of the common cold emerges from that guy's stomach, killing him. And it feels like something out of like Night of the Creeps or Slither. And I love the way that it looks and it's running around and everybody's freaking out. And we find out that this is super serious because because it's linked to the common cold. And it's just this catalyst that turns it into this deadly super slug. This could be an an epidemic of massive proportions if Fringe Team can't figure out how a way to stop it. So I thought that that was an interesting way to make it a greater threat than just like a targeted attack on like one guy. This is something that could be used to be some sort of super weapon across the globe. So they were upping the stakes on the mystery of the week with the, you know, Professor Kinberg who died. So I like that a lot. I think that really adds some gravitas to the mystery of the week. And especially in a post pandemic world, when anybody says something like epidemic or whatever, red flags start going off and you're like, stop this. I don't like it. That was interesting that this is not just a low level stakes mystery of the week. So at least they, they shot for the moon in that aspect. I also did like in this episode that when Olivia was kidnapped, the relationship potential, I mean, you hinted at, you hinted at, you hinted at it in the comments you made very, very lightly, but the relationship potential between Olivia and Peter in this episode, I think that their potential, uh, their potential relationship got seeded a little bit in that when Olivia got kidnapped, Peter took it very, very personal and he really, really worried about her. So as a, as a Olivia and Peter shipper, when we get there, I'm very happy that the writers started to lay out the groundwork for their potential relationship in the future. Towards the end of the episode, when Olivia finally discovers the FBI mole in the office, that, that jackass, I can't remember his name, that jackass, when she finally figures out that it's that guy who kidnapped her, who 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 intentionally made himself sick, who helped Jones break out of the prison, although she doesn't know that yet. But when she finally gets that guy and confronts that guy and starts questioning that guy, he says something very, very interesting that made me go, huh, holy shit, this might not be what we think it is. He says, everything that we were doing to you the reason why we kidnapped you is because we wanted to save you. We wanted to save you from them. And tell me at least that you know about that. And I'm like, what the fuck is he talking about? And then Charlie later on and pretty much everybody later on chalks it up as this guy's crazy. You just showed him a picture of his wife that you just shot. These people are insane. These people didn't know what they were talking about. They they were under stress and they were basically feeding you shit. But Matt, what did you think back in the day when he said that? 
So I know that as this guy, and he just got the upsetting news that Olivia had killed his wife. So his wife did come back. And I love the scene where Olivia realizes she's in trouble and she's in his house and they're tapping the phones and all of the stuff that goes on for Samantha Loeb to get killed, Mitchell Loeb to get arrested and the wiretap and all of that as everybody comes together when they know that Loeb is bad and fringe team does their best to get this bastard. And then in the interrogation, he's not giving them anything and he's just smirking and looking like a dick. And it's when she shows him the photo of the dead wife and she's like, you want to see her? Well, here she is. And guess who pulled the trigger motherfucker? It was me. And that's when he's like, he's like freaking out. And, uh, he says, you know, you ruined the plan. We were trying to save you. There's two sides. He does say two sides in the war and you have just turned the tables or done whatever in that moment, though, I'm not quite believing him because if they were trying to save Olivia, then kidnap her, but don't strap her to a fucking table that you can turn upside down like water torture style and do all this stuff that feels so sinister. If you want me to believe that you were trying to save her and that what you were doing was good. Why not kidnap her and set her up in a lazy boy with a box set of lost. And she can just enjoy that while you guys take care of the war. Okay. So in that moment, I realized like he is freaking out and he's losing it because his wife is dead. But also if he is telling the truth, then these people are fucking morons because they went about it all wrong. If you just want her off the board for a bit, you're better off taking her and then treating her as a human being with respect and telling her why you have taken her. Even if you don't want to tell her the specifics, just say, look, this is for your own good. Trust me. 48 hours from now, we will let you walk out of here. It's all good. And that's not what they do. So I know that at the time I'm thinking, I'm sure part of this is true. And maybe that Mitchell Loeb believes what he's saying, but the way they went about it, I still think these guys were up to something nefarious. And because we've got Jared Harris as Mr. Jones involved, I don't trust these bastards. I can't believe a word they're saying that they've got Moriarty with them. Like I can't trust these guys. So even when he does that, I'm not, I'm not believing that it's just the truth, plain and simple, but I'm also not thinking it's just upset rantings. And that's sort of where Olivia ends up as she snuggles up to her niece, Ella at the end. And we can tell that she is kind of playing things back in her mind because she is not so sure that Loeb wasn't telling some kernel of truth and that there is more that she needs to be concerned about overall. So I thought that was the most interesting and dynamic part of this episode. And as you mentioned, the small interaction where Peter uh, says to Olivia, like, I'm glad you're back. I was worried. And Walter goes, he was very worried. And he's like, yeah, we were worried. And he goes, no, no, he was very, very worried. Uh, Throwing all of the Peter Olivia shippers a a bone in that moment was really fun. I love what you said just there, just now, that if these people really wanted to help Olivia, they could have gone about it a different way and not strapped her to a chair 
And but but if if these people really wanted to help Olivia, why did they put why did they do a spinal tap on her spine for what? And that begs the question. Oh, maybe they did that to take something out of her body that we that 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 we haven't even heard about yet. But if we but if you've seen the series, you may know what I'm possibly thinking about here. But why would they do that? That would mean that Olivia wouldn't be able to do something that she's going to need to do later on. So it makes no sense. Like, do you think that the writers were thinking this far ahead or they just wanted to make an interesting scary scene with Olivia in a really horrible situation. I'm sure that they were thinking of something because it it's mentioned more than once. So it's not just in passing. Olivia's like, well, then what about the spinal tap? So the fact that it's mentioned like, like four times, like take a drink every time they mentioned that (laughs) Olivia had a spinal tap. I feel like it's gotta be, Something that in the episode, we aren't supposed to notice that they're saying it so much, but it's not just uh they took me and did weird shit to me. It's so explicit that you've got to believe it's because they wanted to bring it back later. And on that note, guys, I think that'll do it for this week's episode of Radio 815. If you guys like anything we do here on the show and you would like to reach out to us, there are many ways to do that. First, if you want to reach out to us with any questions or comments or whatever, you can just simply reach us uh, by using the hashtag Radio815 on Twitter, or you can reach out to us on our personal Twitter page. It is JJUniverse815. If you would like to talk to me personally, the best place to do that is on Twitter. I'm at, I'm at CreekFanatic88. Matt, if the good folks at home want to reach out to you, what would be the best place for them to do that? On Twitter, at Matt Crandall. Until next time, as always, we'll talk back soon. Radio 815 is a Balloonhead Productions presentation in association with Killer Newt Productions.